On the last episode of Whip Count, I spoke to state agency leaders about the coordinated efforts our state has undertaken to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic. Since the governor declared a state of emergency in March, most public policy has been created through executive orders, while the legislature postponed session for safety. But even though they haven't been voting in legislative hall, state representatives have stepped up to the challenge of helping their constituents navigate this lockdown. Many people are struggling accessing the services they need, dealing with lost income, and caring for children engaged in remote learning for the very first time. Representatives have become an important liaison between constituents and Delaware's government, and their input has been vital to the decisions being made every day. As they prepare for Delaware's very first virtual session next week, I spoke to representatives Namdi Chukwocha, David Bentz, Paul Bombeck, and Ed Osinski about their personal perspective on COVID-19 and the work they've been doing for the last two months. From the Delaware House Democratic Caucus, this is Whip Count. State Representative Namdi Chikwocha, the first district, which is the northern part of Wilmington and the part of Newcastle County, basically goes from the Brandywine River Silesianum School to Mount Pleasant School, which would be my border on the, the north, and then to the east, I, I go roughly a little, a few blocks past uh, North Market Street. So, Rep. Chikwocha, you have a background in social work. Normally, you know, a social worker would be out in the community, physically out in the community, working with people, uh, talking to people, having a lot of face-to-face interactions. And obviously, a lot of that's been curtailed. You know, how has uh, your work in the community changed? What kind of new things are you trying now that you can't do as much face-to-face interaction? Uh, I think, I'm guessing in in some way it's returned back to what it used to be when there's a lot of phone calls, when you were sitting, you know, on your phone for for hours talking to individuals or individuals are calling you once again with with concerns and a a lot of emails and and follow up. And but also just doing what you can, as you mentioned, as a social worker to keep that that community and civic engagement alive. So a lot of interactions with with constituents, with, with families online, a lot of FaceTime. And with, with, with youth groups, a lot of interacting with, with civic associations via, via Skype and other meeting uh, platforms so that we're able to meet. So a lot of things are, are happening in, in various ways in order to allow us as a society to begin to adapt to this, this situation in which we're in where we can't be together. But yet we still have to be together to, to come together to solve many of the issues that we collectively face. I mean, the, the events are, are, are great when you see the, the level of need within a community. And you know that your services are directly tied to that need and you're trying to provide supports to individuals and families, even entire communities that are in need, rather it be the, the, the food distributions or, or rather it be masks or screenings and just bringing everyone together. And it's showing that truly this is a collective effort. And there has been such great participation all throughout the district. I mean, even from our school-based programs, assisting with getting technology into the hands of students and families to our our seniors to get them the mask and gloves and protective equipment to getting having screenings within the district. There are so many individuals who are are stepping up to to assist the the, the city of Wilmington, the the county, so many of our our civic associations and neighborhood planning councils are, are involved in these collective efforts. So it's really showing 
how we're we're together again, just just focusing on on this new challenge that we all face together. Um, another one of these sort of mutual aid efforts I know you've been involved in was handing out Chromebooks to students. And I know education is really important to you as a legislator. So I wanted to get your perspective on remote learning and how education has changed drastically in the last few months for students and what we're doing to address that. Yeah, the the distance learning process and just trying to create the level of engagement that we need for our students and families to be successful at remote learning is, is it's a challenge. So not only do we have to ensure that they have the connectivity, but also the devices. And then once they have the devices, they, they have to be encouraged to participate in the online instruction. So it's a lot of that that one on one social work, just meeting with, with, with families and calling engagement, daily phone calls, check ins, supporting schools, supporting our, our, our community partners in order to ensure that we're providing a supports to families that they need to enable them to participate, rather it be online or, or through the academic packets, but we really just have to, to ensure that the supports are in place and that our students feel supported throughout this academic process and that this this period of, of being out of school doesn't mean that you're out of school. That I mean, we're not in summer yet. This is still during the school year. We have to still push our, our students forward so that there isn't so much of a, of, of a loss in, in preparing for the upcoming school year, whatever that may be. Even if we continue this this online period of instruction, we have to make sure that our students and families know that they are supported and that they have the tools and community supports necessary to be successful learners. I mean, this is definitely a, a, a learning process that we are learning as we go. We've never faced anything like this before. And I, I was fortunate enough maybe two weeks ago to be a part of a call with students from youngest second grade all the way to high school seniors participating in this call to talk about their their experience with with online learning and to hear some of the students say, I mean, it, it, it's so difficult that we, we get so much more work piled on us during this online process from one school to the next, from none class to the next class, that it's it's more work online than it would be if we were going to school every day. And that and then many of these students were are, are juniors and seniors rising, juniors and seniors who some are who are about to graduate and need to fulfill these requirements to, to go off to college and other students who are, are juniors, rising seniors who would need certain classes in order to, to enroll in certain classes like IB or honors classes for next semester. So they know they have to take these classes and these students are, are being given so many, I guess, just because of the, the structure of the online learning platforms and, and the, the calendars and schedules that the students are being overburdened. So that was one of the key things that, that I found just very highlighting the need. And then the other was that the I guess the outright lack of participation where some some classes where you may have 20 students in the class enrolled and you, some of the enrollment or participation engagement in the remote learning was was as few as two or three students and realizing that need and how do we reach those hard to reach students to ensure that they are participating and that this period isn't a period of loss and how do we have a, a, a remote learning and distance learning platform that takes into consideration those hard to reach students and ensuring rather it's, it's that that social worker support those community-based supports that are engaging those students and families to be a part of the process those are things that really need to be 
closer aligned and tied into this structure as we go forward in a way that we we begin to assess the successfulness of the online and distance learning. I, I think that's a way in which we have to begin to gauge. It's one thing to give students the, the laptops, but it's another thing to have the student and their family engaged in the learning process where the parent is participating as well as the students and the teacher is able to communicate and the students are receiving the supports they need from the teacher as well as the student students that are receiving the supports that they need at home as well. Your district encompasses a lot of Delaware's historically underserved communities. And I wanted to know from you, how is this crisis affecting your community sort of uniquely in your opinion? Are there things that you think that we need to focus on going forward, you know, even after we can get everyone immunized and healthy? Are there things that we need to make sure we do to help people out in a district like yours or others around the state? Yeah, I really think all around the state, I know some parts of my district are, are, are handling it pretty well. And you, you don't see much of, a, of an impact when other areas there. I mean, you, you see it outright in, in where you see the needs, the needs that are just being highlighted by the crisis, needs that were already there from the inequities and in, in accessibility to, to health care. You, you see it in, in certain, <coughs> excuse me. So socioeconomically deprived parts of, of, of my district where there are extreme needs where so many individuals who, who have lost their, their jobs and they have no no access to, to income, the food insecurity w w within parts of, of my district where individuals are, are truly in, in need. I mean, of, of food to feed their families. I receive calls every day, calls re regarding assistance with, with support for Department of Labor, assistance with, with providing referrals to, to food, w working with um, partners in, in my community, Lutheran community. Services is, is one organization within my district giving out food. So working with everyone, trying to meet these unique needs. But the overall is really just showing that there is a lot before pre-COVID-19, there were a lot of issues. And now those issues still exist. And we, we just have to continue to work and try to progress our society together and, and not forgetting about those who are in the most need, but really focusing on their needs as we all move forward together. I mean, I, I guess myself, as you mentioned, as a community-based social worker and realizing the importance uh, of engagement and wanting to be out. I know so many of us are, are you know, biting, just, just foaming at the mouth to get out and, and, and want society to reopen and, and want to get back to our lives as we knew them. Unfortunately, this, this pandemic is still, you know, heavily amongst us and it's still a very deadly environment and we really must take caution so that's my concern is 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 for especially with, with the, the holiday weekend and, and individuals starting to think about being outside and in and, and beaches and and, and and having once again group group activities I'm just concerned. I'm concerned. I know we need the support for for our businesses and to continue to to buy the gift cards at the businesses in my district and and pick up services. But that reopening our, our society, I, I I'm just cautious everybody to do what they can 
to ensure that that they are being healthy, wearing their their mask and protective equipment when when they go out, gloves and, and, and masks, and, and to have appropriate social social distancing. It, it's very important for for each one of us, for not only for our own health, but for our families and those around us. And as much as we want to have a healthy economy, we have to have a healthy community first. So we have to stay healthy and do what we can to ensure that we're we're a healthy community so that we can make our, our community, state, nation, and even our, our world healthy again, because this is a, a grave, serious time that, that we're in, and it's going to take each one of us doing our individual part to get through it. State Rep. David Bence, I represent the 18th District, which is uh, has parts of uh, Bear, Newark, and Newcastle centered around the Christiana area. Rep. Bence, you've been on a lot of calls with healthcare officials, um, you know, with DHSS and DPH. Um, what have you personally learned about this COVID-19 pandemic that you think the average person might not know but should know? I think one of the uh, things that I don't know that the public at large has sort of come to terms with yet is kind of how long these this situation is going to be with us. Uh, I think when shutdowns first started, there was a sense that you know we we would all have to sort of socially distance for a couple of weeks, and then hopefully by summer or late spring we would be able to kind of return to normal, return to life before uh, COVID nineteen, almost like you know like like it was in January, if you will. Um, I think that the reality that life's not going to return to that stage in the near term is something that the public at large is starting to come to terms with, but isn't sort of there yet, I don't think, in the, the broad base of, of people. And I, I do think um, people are starting to come to grips with that, but more and more people are going to have to, to get there as well to understand that as the state looks to reopen in the coming weeks, uh, which is, is what everybody's kind of working towards now, we have seen a, a stabilization in uh, the outbreak. Um, we're going to look for ways that we can reopen and reopen safely. Um, that this this new way of doing business, this new way of interacting with one another is, is, while not as extreme as it maybe has been the last six to eight weeks, is going to have to continue in some fashion for the foreseeable future until we can you know, get access to a vaccine or a treatment that can be widely distributed. Uh, so I, I just think the public sort of coming to terms with the fact that even when they're, you know, allowed to return to work, allowed to return back outside and social gatherings, that there's going to remain limitations in place on, you know, what they can do. There's going to need to be precautions that they take and a constant sense of awareness that they're going to need to carry with them for quite some time here. I think that people do think that at some point, whether that's in a couple weeks or maybe a little bit longer, everything's just going to kind of snap back to normal. But that's not even how we have it planned, you know, with the with the reopening plan from the governor's office. So can you explain a little bit how the process is planned to work at this point and, and sort of some of the steps involved? It's very gradual at first. Um, so what the governor has released is, a, I believe, a three-phased uh, sort of reopening, and this mirrors a lot of what we're getting from federal agencies and what they've uh, kind of handed down to us is what they see as a need for a phased-in reopening. The governor has said that June 1st is his target to enter into phase one. 
Uh, if you look closely at his plans around phase one, you're going to see that they actually don't resemble a whole, they, they don't resemble a huge change from where things are now. There are some relaxations, some more businesses that are going to reopen and things like that. But what phase one kind of represents is a, a real baby step forward uh, from where we are now. And it's kind of a test. It's kind of us putting our, our, our toes in the water to see if we can have relaxed social distancing requirements and not see a, a return to a out of control surge of new infections. Um, so what you'll see is that phase one is, is really just a, a baby step forward. And if we can maintain stabilization, that's when you're going to see more relaxation, more uh, an increase, the speedier relaxation of the distancing requirements in phases two and three. Uh, phase three is what really starts to look like life as we knew it before. Um, there's still going to be precautions in place, even if you look at those, those final phases around, you know, whether or not large sporting events and, and concerts and things like that are, are, are going to continue to take place in phase three is still very much in doubt. But what you start to see is a, is a slow return to uh, what life was like in terms of being able to have social gatherings and, and family gatherings and uh, stores returning open with some higher levels of capacity. But what you're going to see first in June, if, if we're able to hit that target, the target the governor's laid out of June 1st is uh, just a real small incremental baby step forward to see if we can relax some of these restrictions without just returning to that sort of accelerated exponential growth that we were experiencing two months ago. And that's going to be the test. If we can do it without losing control, without losing the stability that we've had, uh, then we can start looking into relaxing even further. But we need to make sure that you know, we can do this without just ending right back up where we where we were without canceling out all the progress we've made over the last two months. And that brings up another question I think a lot of people have, which is if we are going to at least attempt reopening in some fashion before there is a vaccine available, why did we need to socially distance in the first place? What, what is the purpose of us all being at home right now? Well, we needed to stabilize the, the rate of infections. Okay, so it, you've heard that term flattening the curve for months now, and what does that mean? Well, it, it means what we've done, which is plateauing or stabilizing the increased rate of infections. What we were dealing with at first when we moved into this close down was it, th this was spiraling exponentially. This was growing at a speed with which we there was nothing we could do to stop it short of what we did. Um, that there was no amount of just telling people to wear masks or, or telling people to stay six feet apart that was going to stop it from growing at the rates that it was. We were, we were running headfirst into a situation where hospitals were going to you know, lose their capacity and ventilators were going to run out. And all those sort of worst case scenarios that you heard back in February and early March, that's what we were headed towards. What the last uh, couple months of, of lockdown has accomplished is prevented those things from happening. And what you've seen is the, our, our rates of, of new infections and the outbreak has stabilized. And, uh, what we've gone from a, a curve that was just growing out of control to one that is kind of flatlined and plateaued in a way. Um, and what we look to do going forward is how do we put safety safeguards in place in a reopened society that can prevent us from going back to seeing that exponential growth? Can we go back to a reopening where we maintain the stability that we've accomplished the last two months? And 
maintain that stability in an open society where all businesses are allowed to function and people are allowed to move around. That's the goal. But we needed to corral it first. We needed to get that stability first before we could reopen and, and reopen in a way that we had strategies in place, protocols in place that allowed us to maintain that stability, allowed us to maintain the hospital capacity that we do have and, and maintain the safety for everyone. Um, so it was really about that, getting some sense of stability in place and stopping the exponential growth. But then also the last couple of months have really taught us a lot about what this virus is and what it's doing and what sort of safeguards we're going to need in place in order to uh, be able to reopen. So it, it's, it served also as a planning period as well for businesses to understand what their role is going to be, for people to understand what role they're going to play in, in slowing down the spread of this and, and making sure it doesn't accelerate again. Um, but then also just letting the, the healthcare system you know, readjust and make sure that the, the virus itself sort of flatlines in its uh, spread. So there's a whole host of things that have been accomplished the last couple of months that you know, I think has set us up to where hopefully we can as we shift to reopening, we can do it in a way that's not going to just take us back to where we were two months ago. And that's really been the whole purpose of this. And those, those are all really important points because we are doing things for a reason and we have started to accomplish some of the goals that we were looking to accomplish. But there's still a lot of myths and misinformation out there and some of it is pretty malicious. I want to know from your perspective as a state rep, as someone who works on public health issues, how frustrating is it to see that we're fighting against this misinformation when you see it how do you push back on it so I, I think it's you know you just you just have to combat it with the truth um, and the truth that we have and you know and whether or not people decide to believe that or not is something that's kind of outside of our control but all you can kind of control as an individual is making sure that you are armed with the best information possible that is you know myself not I'm not an epidemiologist I'm not a doctor um, but I make sure that the information I am distributing to my constituents and distributing to people who have questions is the best information I can get from people who do understand this, who do work closely with this and, and have the expertise needed to, to provide uh, thoughtful responses and answers and, and to get the right information out there. So that's really all that I feel like I can do is to make sure that what I'm saying is as accurate as possible and that what I'm saying is reflective of what the experts uh, would agree is, is the best information. Um, I think to some extent, uh, my own interaction with constituents is that they, for the most part, understand why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, I think that there's there's people want to go back to work. They want to return to to what their life was. Um, so there's there's growing frustration about the inability to do that. But for the most part, people understand why these sorts of sacrifices have had to be made so far. Uh, and they understand that you know we're we're doing this so that we can return to life resembling normal as soon as possible that the two kind of go hand in hand. Um, so, so, to some extent, I think that a lot of the myths and, and are being spread by a kind of a small minority number of people, um, but how you combat that is, as, but unfortunately those myths get legs and they start spreading and then it confuses people, even people who aren't inclined to to want to believe falsehoods, but it kind of gets mixed in with what is real and then people have a tough time sort of differentiating the two. So my role is really just making sure that the information that I give is based on what, you know, the people who would know the answer to these things, what they believe. Um, so the, the experts in the room, the epidemiologists, the scientists, the doctors, and, and those folks, that's, that's the information I'm using. That's the information I'm sharing with my constituents.
It's been tough from a communication standpoint. We, we, you know, to, to the constituents that, that may be listening to this, you're used to seeing me at your community meetings that happen quarterly or, or some of them even monthly. So there's that constant access point to community leaders, to constituents, civic associations, where you're constantly being uh, given the opportunity to stay up to speed on what's going on in these communities, what's going on in people's lives. Um, and, and where things are working or not working in, in their communities and how you can fix them. It's been obviously a challenge as we've all sort of hunkered down here. Um, but we found ways, right? We, we send email alerts, we use social media. We, you know, I've been doing sort of almost a monthly uh, virtual town hall presence. It, it doesn't fully replace getting out there in public, getting out there in person and hearing from people directly in person. Um, but it's what we can do in the current situation. Um, you know, what I'm hearing from them most in terms of what they need is, is unfortunately, people who have been negatively impacted by this in terms of their employment status and things like that. The government has, in the immediate aftermath of this, set up a number of uh, social safety net uh, provisions to try to help people get through this. And a lot of them were around unemployment and making sure that in, you know, different people could qualify for unemployment, you know, if they lost their job due to COVID-19, if they, you know, were an independent contractor who's lost work and all these sorts of things that have resulted in expanded access to unemployment. And people don't necessarily know what all sorts of help may be out there for them. So a lot of what we've been doing is, you know, fielding calls, fielding emails from constituents who are saying, hey, I'm having a tough go of it right now. You know, what is there that's available to me to, or my business to try to help us get through this? And for a lot of folks, that's people who have lost their jobs, hopefully temporarily. Um, you know, people working in service or hospitality, if, if, you know, they are maybe hopefully just losing their work, their job until those places can reopen. But how do they get their process, their, their unemployment claims processed quickly enough so that they can start getting uh, the, the the payments there and if you're a business what do you qualify for what does your small business qualify for in terms of supports because the division of small businesses stood up a lot of assistance programs for them too so it's been a lot of the, the interactions i'm getting with constituents is people who are struggling who are facing setbacks because of this and they want to know you know what is it that's available to them to help them get through this tough period and fortunately we've been able to stand up a lot of assistance for people in a short period of time to try to get them through this and and it's been our job really and i think a lot of my colleagues as well to, to connect them to these services that have been uh, set up uh, i'm paul bomback state representative for the 23rd representative district in delaware which is the west and north side of newark Paul, you are sort of leading the charge on ways that reps can stay in contact with their constituents digitally. You've run a number of Facebook Live town halls with just you and also with Senator Dave Sicola. And I wanted to hear from you, what do you think is the most effective ways that you've been communicating with your constituents um, since we've all had to stay at home? I think the simplest answer is there's no single way, um, but I think the best way to stay in contact is having as many different avenues open as possible. Um, so if there's an avenue that, uh, is, that I know about, I'm going to use it. If there's one I don't yet know about and someone shares it, I'm probably going to use it. Um, so obviously, you know, we continue to get an awful lot of e uh, emails and phone calls uh, from residents of our district, and we uh, work hard to resolve uh, the issues raised there as fast as possible. 
uh, in this time where we uh, must socially uh, distant and uh, I'll actually say uh, maintain safe distancing, uh, we can't have our monthly coffees and things like that. So uh, what I've been doing is having at least weekly uh, Facebook town halls. Um, I've just lately been setting up a once a weekend sort of weekend update, but without the uh, Saturday Night Live humor. Um, because <clears throat> really as a wrap up, um, this state of emergency often has uh, big news coming out each week and not everyone is hanging on for some reason, not everyone is hanging on everything I post on Facebook. So uh, the weekend updates a way to just get the, the high notes um, of, of what's gone on. So um, it, it also means uh, part of it is being as informed as possible. So it means uh, I spend a lot of time uh, reading and watching uh, press briefings and and, uh, and releases, press releases and uh, research and, and news stories um, so that when somebody asks about, you know, what about, has this test passed the FDA, the ones that state's using, what's its level of false positives and false negatives? Um, you know, those are things that I'm uh, relatively well-versed in sharing pretty good information on. Um, so uh, I think that the main thing is is being accessible in whichever avenue um, a resident uh, may be most comfortable using. So that's that's how I've been approaching this uh, novel time with this uh, novel coronavirus. I'll say in person is a lot easier. <laughs> so one thing I've learned is it, it is not a substitute. Um, it is what you can do during these times. Um, it's better than email in that it, it can be two-way, um, but it's not as good as a phone call where it's much simpler to ask a question, get an answer, come back with a refinement question, get another answer, and, and really have a conversation. Um, it is, uh, there's just the logistics, frankly, of looking at the camera while you're also perhaps looking at the question, while you're also perhaps uh, on a computer trying to find an answer. Um, so it's, uh, it, it is, a different set of challenge. Um, it's like what we normally do, which is, you know, if I have a, a morning coffee, I'm asked a question and I need to come up with an answer off the cuff. And that's uh, challenging, but that's part of the job. Um, and when you do a Facebook Live, you do the same thing. You'll get questions um, that uh, you may not have be expecting and still you want to do a, a good quality job in fielding uh, an answer as best you can. Um, the... <clears throat> Uh, I enjoy the uh, Facebook Live and the video uh, a few different reasons. One is it's stored and people can catch it when uh, it's convenient to them. One of the weakness of my monthly morning coffee is it's a weekday morning coffee. And if, if you're working at that time, you can't come and participate. Uh, we do tape it and some people watch it, but I think during coronavirus, uh, more people are around uh, to watch these things, have more time on their hands to be able to uh, catch videos that they find uh, most either entertaining or informative. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's a little bit of a unique environment uh, to be taking yourself while reading questions and trying to get the best answers uh, out there as possible. Um, it's not my, my first choice. My first choice is being face-to-face -face with people. 
uh, and interacting with them, but we don't get our first choices uh, during the state of emergency. Uh, when you are talking to constituents, what are the issues you're hearing about from them most? There, there's a range of them, um, and everyone has a, a top concern, a top topic. Uh, just in the past four days, uh, there have been a lot of parents of students at Downs Elementary School uh, who are concerned with some of the uh, budget cuts that uh, the Christina School District uh, has approved in light of a $10 million shortfall that would be uh, solved uh, should the, the district voters uh, approve the referendum next month. Um, but uh, you've got you know, parents who are very concerned about, will this program be there in the fall? Um, so they're, they're reaching out to everyone. Um, we've had a lot of residents reach out in the past many weeks regarding unemployment benefits. And oftentimes, um, they may have filed something online, may have missed one or two pieces of data, and then you get into that uh, black hole of, oh, we have a problem, give our office a call, and you call the office, and maybe you get hung up on, or maybe you leave a voicemail, and maybe it takes five days, you still haven't heard back from me, you have no idea. Um, so a lot of residents have reached out uh, to me, and my aide, Chris Norton, has been wonderful in tracking those down and really getting uh, pretty darn quick answers and most often getting those benefits rolling. Um, but you also have people, I'm, I'm sort of known as being a, a very loud champion for state parks and the White Clay Street State Park in particular. So the rules for the state park, uh, you know, uh, using trails and coexisting with other trail users and should masks be used under what circumstances? Um, you know, what do we do about out-of-state users? What do we do about parking along the street for the people who are fishing? You know, details very specific to our region and our state park. Um, you know, that, that has come up uh, recently. Um, when we've got changing rules, we've got changing rules. We've had, you know, some relaxation regarding curbside pickup for um, a lot of retail stores uh, in the past week or so. And uh, so there's questions about, you know, is that safe? How is that best done? Um, and before that, we had a lot of business owners who were uh, reaching out to us, trying to find out what exactly is the path uh, for the planned relaxation of the restrictions. And that's something that's uh, taken a lot of time uh, to try to pull those answers from the administration to figure out what are the preconditions for phase one. You know, what, they're pretty clear about what's in phase one, what's in phase two, and phase three. They really are not clear at all with what it takes to get to, to approve getting into phase one, what it takes to approve getting into phase two. Um, so right. um, being able to get answers to people about what the, the road ahead of us looks like uh, during uh, this pandemic uh, until we get uh, broadly uh, administered vaccine, which is you know, most likely sometime next year. When you're when you're getting these concerns that whether it's from a constituent, whether it's from a business in your community, what are the unique challenges you're facing now in trying to help those constituents? Um, what's the most challenging thing about dealing with the communication you're getting right now? I'll say there's two frustrations. One is just not being able to get face to face with with people. It's a lot easier to fully understand the depth of the concerns when you're face-to-face -face with somebody and able to get the nonverbal communication. Um, and and that, that means that it, um, I, I can't really understand the issue as deeply as I would like to. Um, but I think that the, the other frustration is, as a legislature, 
uh, we're on hold. Um, and the things that I could be doing uh, if we were in session um, are, is greater, is a notably greater list. I mean, I can uh, set up a meeting and sit down with a cabinet secretary uh, with relatively short notice um, when we're in session and just meet in Leg Hall next Tuesday at, you know, at, at 12 o'clock. Um, it's uh, cabinet secretaries and their division you know, leads are, uh, in some cases, um, extremely busy uh, dealing with a public health emergency. Um, and uh, so we don't have the access we would like. Um, for that matter, I can't get face-to-face with my colleagues. And sometimes um, when you're regularly meeting uh, in Legislative Hall in the first half of the year, um, you can be talking in the hallway with several of your legislators, and uh, your fellow legislators, and realize we have a lot in common, and this issue is something that we're all getting frustrated with, and let's work together to find a path forward. Um, and that, uh, and you end up getting that um, addressed and moving forward. It's it's difficult when we are all you know one district apart and not able to collaborate uh, anywhere near as seamlessly as we can when we're in session. So. Right. Uh, this this uh, hibernation, uh, you know, shelter in place uh, is difficult for everyone and certainly including the legislature. I think that the one thing I, I'd like to, to really stress each time um, is that uh, we're in a state of emergency. This is a global pandemic. Um, we have been able to um, partially contain this through following the restrictions that have been laid down by governors across the country. And, and leaders of countries across the world. Um, these are all sacrifices, and they hit us all unevenly. Um, and uh, I very much appreciate the sacrifices that everyone is making. Um, we are, it, 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 it's trite, it's a cliche to say uh, that we're all in this together, but it, uh, we are all in this together. Um, we need each other uh, to, as much as possible, follow these rules, and that will... Um, speed us uh, past this, and that will have our world better when we get past this. So thank you to everyone who's um, following the rules as best they can, um, and we will, we will get through this. I am State Representative Ed Osinski. And I represent the area of uh, Newark and Brookside area. Um, and I've been the representative here since uh, 2010. This, this situation, uh, the one big thing is I, I certainly do miss uh, traveling to Dover um, to work side by side with my General Assembly colleagues and um, the whole process of um, moving um, legislation that addresses uh, issues and impact uh, Delawareans. But since that used to take up much of my time, um, this situation has actually afforded me um, more time to work uh, quicker and directly on uh, constituent issues in a much faster um, time. And I spend most of my days uh, helping constituents now um, negotiate through unemployment 
claims and some of my constituents have gotten uh, lost through the process and I've been able to help them um, get those claims processed. I've worked with some small businesses in the district to help them uh, get their payroll protection program loans as well as uh, nonprofits such as the Newark Senior Center, um, which was successful in getting uh, accepted into that program, which is crucial for them. So that has been some of the things that uh, are been a priority. Um, other things I've been working on, the family and I have been volunteering at several food bank uh, events to help distribute food out in the communities. And I've also worked with the food bank to set up a couple local well, actually two local distri uh, distributions. One will be this Thursday uh, exclusively for the low-income senior community of Marydale. Um, the food bank has agreed to do a food distribution pantry there on Thursday, and I've also scheduled one for the surrounding communities at the Christiana High School uh, parking lot to be held on May 28th. Um, so I've been working, setting that up with the uh, Food Bank of Delaware. And let's talk about that. I know the Food Bank is something that you've been involved with for a long time now. And when you set up these distribution events or when you go volunteer for the Food Bank, um, are you seeing anything there that you would say is new? Well, the, just the, the volume, just the, the volume of people that are lining up to receive um, this, these food supplies has just been mind-boggling. Um, I've worked in events in the past um, prior to the pandemic, and uh, we never saw uh, lines like we are seeing now. So it's, it's funny, the food bank recently moved into a brand-new facility, and the foresight of the leadership there at the food bank and the generosity of the donors that allowed that expansion to happen, you know, I know had no idea that this was around the corner. And now in that new facility, they, they have the capacity that has been so well needed here during this, these large distribution events. So without all those dollars that were donated uh, by the corporations and the state of Delaware, through bond bill funding, um, a lot of this food distribution wouldn't be possible. But um, thankfully, it is. And the food bank has stepped up to this need and all the volunteers. It takes many, many volunteers to first package uh, these things, these supplies, and then volunteers to distribute them. Uh, well, you're the chair of the House Labor Committee. The Department of Labor is doing more work now than they have in a long, long time. Uh, have you talked with the department at all about programs they're working with, like unemployment? Have you gotten feedback from people on that? Do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, the folks that work for the Department of Labor and specifically the unemployment, um, Division of Unemployment, have been really stepping up. Um, those folks are working uh, nonstop in processing the the um, the tremendous amount of new claims and to work through that. Uh, I work closely with uh, the director Daryl Scott, 
Um, he and his staff are doing tremendous work under these uh, tough circumstances, and they've been helpful in helping process my constituent claims. Um, actually, I chair the Labor Department, and my vice chair is Representative Kim Williams, and the Senate um, chair is uh, Senator Jack Walsh, and his vice chair is Senator Nicole Poor. And we recently all chipped in to um, buy the uh, folks that are manning the phones and the computers in the unemployment uh, division. Uh, we all pitched in to, uh, to purchase them lunch, to, just to show them a little token of our appreciation for the hard work that they're doing. So I, I think kind of the theme here is that there's a big need right now, whether it's people who, are, who need food from the food bank or meals delivered or people who are looking for services like unemployment. Do you have any advice to people who might be a little bit more fortunate than others during this time? Are there things that they could be doing potentially to help lighten the load on organizations like the food bank? Like I said, my family, we volunteered at several of the um, packing events. You know, they have a, a, a pretty easy system. If you go on to a Food Bank of Delaware website to volunteer, if you're healthy and able, it's a good way to get out, uh, stretch your legs. They have um, a very safe and clean atmosphere there. They go through the process on making sure people are social distancing and wearing the face masks. Um, but yeah, there's, there's always those opportunities and I'm sure there's uh, plenty of others. Um, but I would like to also add that there's been a lot of other stuff I've been doing within the district um, now that, you know, we're not running down in Dover. Like last week I met with the uh, conservation district and their contractor on a long-awaited uh, drainage uh, project that is happening in my district. So we walked the site last week and the contractor is starting this week. And this is going to clean out some major drainage canals, which is going to alleviate any uh, future backup of uh, stormwater in the communities of Scottfield and Breezewood. Um, where I've also went out and uh, checked on all the CTF, the Community Transportation Fund projects in my district this year. Uh, they're happening in Brookside, Chestnut Hill Estates, Greenleaf Manor, Elmwood, and Windy Hills. Those projects are well ahead of schedule, if not already complete and this summer paving project. I've also been working with DelDOT on some other major projects that are happening right now. Salem Church Road uh, is, the, is closed down over the bridge, um, the bridge over 95 because it's being repaired. Um, that was moved up due to the um, declining of uh, traffic during the day. And also the Chapman Road Bridge uh, project is moving forward and has started. Um, I've also been keeping an eye on and listening to the leaders of the Christiana School District. Um, there's some uh, upcoming board election and referendum election, which is a, uh, pr a crucial um, decision that the citizens of the 24th will have to be deciding on. So take, I plan on taking part in a meeting with the uh, Department of Education and the governor's staff on some of the concerns that the district is dealing with right now. 
Um, and when I'm not working on the district issues, I've been reviewing uh, DFAC, the revenue and spending forecasts to, to help uh, when it comes to make well-informed, fiscally responsible uh, decisions on our current 2020 budget and our pending 2021 budget. Um, we will be addressing those issues here uh, next month when we do either return to session or go into virtual session um, because constitutionally we are required to deal with these budgets. So I've been studying all the DFAC numbers to make sure um, we can make the right decisions uh, when it comes to the budgets. Whip Count is brought to you by the Delaware House Democratic Caucus. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash DEHouseDems, on Twitter at DEHouseDems, and on Instagram also at DEHouseDems. More episodes are coming, so make sure you're subscribed. 